Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined again today by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Uh, Another happy birthday, Josh. And some people I know have sent you birthday wishes, and I would encourage others to do so. Well, now now they get their chance. Josh's birthday was, we're recording Tuesday. Josh's birthday was Monday, so... Uh, sounds like you had a passable birthday weekend. Yeah, I mean, you know, you get to a certain age. It's a Monday birthday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kinda, what are you going to do? The world go, goes on. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, great, the great world spins. So in addition to Josh's birthday, well, you know, kind of a lot going on. <laughs> so, you know, off the, top, off the top of my head or, you know, right at the outset, nationally, uh, Donald Trump's federal indictment, his court appearance, uh, as we're recording this, scheduled for later today, you know, swamping most everything else in terms of coverage and, yeah. you know, and not everything, but um, obviously, you know, uh, other things that have been happening that are interesting, even at the national level that I think, you know, we've talked about this, maybe we'll be able to link it all together. We'll see um, without being here for an hour and a half. Um, you know, in terms of national politics, there's also been you know, this kind of implosion of the Republican caucus in the U.S. House, House of Representatives. Um, last week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had to basically send everybody home because his critics on the far right were, you know, voting against all of the rules that were coming out of the Rules Committee for some legislation that was planned, you know, essentially in protest yeah. over the debt ceiling deal. Now, uh, as I read, at least as of this morning, some of that seems to have been at least temporarily ameliorated. Most of the, you know, the insidery coverage from D.C. suggests this is a Band-Aid, not a solution or a resolution. Yeah. I and mean, that makes sense to me. It's a repeated game. And we talk about that yeah. sort of idea a lot here. But I mean, you know, to the extent that, you know, the far right caucus, both in the U.S. House and also in the Texas House has, you know, sort of. Let's just say, you know, played the game multiple times. You know, they're getting better at extracting concessions and the razor thin majority that Republicans have in the House only makes it easier for them. Right. You know, and so that's that's kind of what we're watching play out now. And, and to your point, I think is right, which is, you know, th- I mean, this is, you know, any sort of deal that they get to now to kind of move forward in terms of, you know, kind of getting to some sort of regular order of business in the Congress and passing legislation and stuff is like it's just going to last as long as it does until right. the I mean, next so, time. Some of the spokespeople for you know, the the sort of anti or McCarthy skeptical, shall we say, yeah. uh, forces in the House are saying, you know, that, you know, having felt burned by the debt deal and the lack of reduction in spending that they say they want, you know, want to renegotiate the deal, uh, <laughs> you know, to, which de facto they are already doing. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, policy wise, that could actually plunge us back into more instability at the national level 
when it comes to actually passing budget bills because much of what they want is obviously dead in the U.S. Senate and not going to be signed by the White House. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, just just for a moment, even kind of looking back and, and you think about, you know, Nancy Pelosi and her time sort of dealing with a, with a majority and dealing with, you know, sort of far left critics and everything. And, you know, she took a lot of heat. But, you know, to her credit, she was usually able, you know, to get the vote she needed. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, McCar- and to not have to rely on Republicans and not votes. have to rely on Republicans is a big deal. And, you know, and I think, you know, McCarthy already very early in his tenure, he's probably gonna have a much rougher road when it comes to this kind of. Yeah, kind I mean, of I think, you know, I mean, like, there's a bunch of articles like, you know, it's I mean, I just love like just thinking back now there are these articles like, you know what Kevin McCarthy loves counting votes. Yeah, it's like Kevin McCarthy. You know, he's a he loves he loves he loves the whip. You know, he loves to count, you know, count yeah. the votes. And it's like. Yeah, I bet he loves counting those votes. Yeah, I bet he's having a lot. Of, yeah, having a lot less fun doing that right now. Right. So I think you know that there's going to be more bad news from that. So we'll keep an eye on that and maybe even circle back to both that end. Yeah, we might have some interesting polling data actually. We will, and of course the Trump uh, indictment. I mean, we'll circle back. But you know, meanwhile, back in Texas, we're also seeing, you know, as you as you've already kind of you know sort of introduced a you know Texas level variation on some of these themes. Right. So in the Texas House, uh, they remain gaveled out after having fast-tracked Governor Abbott's legislative priorities for the special session in the in the call, and then adjourned sine die on the first day of the new session. Um, we talked a lot about that last week. We don't need to like re relitigate all of that, but this, you know, in the interim since we recorded last Wednesday and today, you know, it's left the lieutenant governor to stew somewhat and, mm-hmm. and stew publicly. Yeah. Uh, and cast aspersions on the speaker and on the governor and the Texas and and meanwhile the Texas Senate at least for the first few days kind of surreally to my mind seemed to proceed as if everything was normal at least on the floor they debated bills they discussed things and it, it was kind of a strange spectacle now I think we're kind of past that over the weekend I you know a lot of speculation over you know, just what the lieutenant governor's next move was going to be. Yeah. You know, it's going to be a hit to his pride to just adjourn, adjourn the Senate, sine die, and start over. But, you know, it's also hard to keep people around doing nothing. Now, I, I think, you know, they're not doing nothing in the sense that there may there's, you know, may or may not be negotiations going on. There's certainly a degree of public negotiation going on. But, you know, as we said last week, I mean – and and already things are beginning to point toward the next shuffling of allegiances yeah. among the big three. So both the you know the governor and the speaker of the house in the last few days have pointed to another special session to come on education. Mm-hmm. Uh, the governor has he's already reiterated his promise that there will be another special session on education with you know school choice slash ESAs slash vouchers on the call. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, the that issue will be resurrected. On Monday, the the speaker announced the formation of a House Select Committee on Educational Opportunity and Enrichment. I'm just scanning that to see if it has a snazzy yeah. a, a snazzy abbreviate or acronym, but it does no, not. That's unfortunate. Um the <laughs> the SCIOE, um you know, uh, as people look at the membership of that committee, it has a a slight majority of anti-voucher members on the committee. Kind of like the legislature as a whole. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, it's you know, it's interesting you would say that because I think that, you know, without and maybe we'll go, we'll go back and do this later when 
when they call the next, whenever this happens. But if you handicap the votes on that, the committee is actually probably more closely divided than the House as a whole is, or even the Republican Party as a whole. I mean, different people could parse this different ways, and there's some wild cards involved, yeah. but- you know, it does look like it's really only a couple of vote majority. Yeah. And that's politically, I suspect, you'll say, hey, look, we didn't just stack it right. per se. Right? Yeah. So, you know, and then we also saw kind of, you know, I think this week, another interesting thing I think worth flagging or this week and last week since last week we, we podcasted, you know, we saw what I think is an interesting kind of s- split screen bill signings for the governor that really illustrates some interesting dynamics in the party. So on your one screen, the governor, you know, with some amount of fanfare, though not an incredible amount, but some, signed HB 900, which set new standards for school libraries to follow when adding books to their collections. So this is the other shoe dropping of the discussion we've been talking about for over a year of library books and and materials deemed sexually explicit, you know, the bill that was passed was, you know, moderated, I think, from some of these initial conceptions, though I think if you're a kind of First Amendment advocate or, you know, for a lot of people, it's still too much, but not what we were talking about, I don't think, in the very beginning. So, you know, the Texas State Library and RCF's commission will, you know, it has been given the responsibility to create mandatory material standards that then have to be approved by the State Board of Education. You know, authorities have been granted to review book purchases and ratings, and then, you know, in each district, and then you have to publish a list of vendors that don't comply with the rating requirements. So, you know, there's definitely a lot more vetting going on here. And then school districts have to review the the content each odd-numbered year, suspect, and then submit a report to the TEA, you know, basically, you know, a compliance check with that first audit to occur no later than 2025. So that's one screen is get those books out. Right. Speaking to that, you know, and, and it's, you know, it, it build under the rubric of parental rights and review. Uh-huh. And we have polling on that that suggests that, you know, at the end of the day, this. It's not important to people. I'm out of certain, you know, just right. to summarize this, you know, when we go and we looked at sort of yeah. the things the legislature was considering that like generated a fair, a significant amount of, you know, public ink, attention from legislators, attention from the public, you know, these issues that people were talking about. Right. You know, this was not something that was high on the list of like, you know, what does the legislature need to accomplish? The broad priorities. Yeah. And we right. say, you know, when we look at this, we do a lot of other things, you know, just for example, you know, removing, you know, potentially uh, inappropriate books from the library doesn't rank as high as, say, you know, fixing the grid, making <laughs> yeah. sure there's water, school safety, you know, even even things like property tax reduction. You know, there's just a lot of there's just a lot of issues that are higher than this. And yeah. not only that, even the education space, when you look at, at this idea of you know removing books. You know, this is way, way down on the list relative to things like increasing teacher pay and even to the point about under the broad rubric of like parental rights and insights. You know, there's a lot more uh, appetite for like parents gaining access to, you know, instructional materials, let's say, for example, than there is towards removing books from libraries. And so this has been something that, you know, I think, you know, it's it's interesting. I'll just I'll just say one more thing about it. You know, we've been pulling on this for a while and there is just sort of a natural I would call it squeamishness to this idea right. of, of, of taking books out of libraries because, you know, ultimately what it comes down to, and this is sort of what I think is interesting generally about a lot of these issues is, you know, the state isn't saying in a lot of cases, this is what has to happen. They're almost saying this is a rubric for what we expect to happen and now we want the school districts to deal with it. Right. 
And I mean, I could repeat that kind of thing where we change that school district with something else. But there's a lot of this dynamic going on here where, you know, it's not really that, you know, again, the state has been saying, well, we can't have all these patchworks of things. But ultimately, in a lot of these cases where we're talking about community standards and things like that, you know, you are actually inviting, you know, different interpretations to kind of take Well, it turns out in a big, diverse state like Texas, state's kind of a patchwork. At least when it comes to the libraries. But yeah, <laughs> right? no, exactly. So, you know, so, so that, that was a, you know, a bear, but that was very much a, a, you know, I don't want to say it's a sweet spot issue because it's not quite that. But, you know, when we looked at some of the data on this, this, this wasn't generally polarized depending on how you, That's why it's on a- how you framed it, right? So if you framed it as, as you were sort of implying, yeah. you know, should parents be able to know what books their kids are checking out of a school library? Sure. Then Democrats are like, yeah, you know, Whatever. that's not so bad, yeah. right? Um, so it is a you know a bit of how you how you pitch it. Well, and- you know, it's, I mean, I've been saying this. You know, I mean, somebody was asking me this weekend, you know, about a couple weekends ago about you know Ron DeSantis and you know sort of I know pivoting in a weird direction, but this idea of you know running a national campaign on being anti woke and whether that's like an effective right. strategy. And to me, it's not necessarily that that's an effective affirmative strategy. It's just that the response is so terrible. And that's kind of how this sort of stuff is. It's not that, you know, there's a bunch of people out there in Texas clamoring to, to take a bunch of books out of, out, of, out of the libraries or get specific books out of kids' hands. The problem is, is that if you're on the other side of that, and I've said this before, if you're a Democrat who doesn't want this to happen, you end up in the position of basically having someone read to you the most lurid passage from whatever book they find saying, oh, do you, you think a, a third grader should have access to this? And the answer is, well, I've, I don't know. I guess not. Yeah, I don't know. Who <laughs> right. are their parents? I don't know. Or no, <laughs> right. or no, but but this is the thing. Ultimately, that kind of squishiness in response to these things is right. just, it's not a good political spot to be in. Even if, you know, the policy itself is kind of like people are like, well, I don't, does this matter? But the flip side of that is being on the defensive on these issues, I think, is, is pretty challenging. Yeah, you know? I think that's right. I think that's right. So, And that's why some Democrats voted for this bill. I mean, just as yeah, notably, it was like no five or six. No small numbers, yeah. I remember. I mean, not a huge number, but yeah. So, so on one screen, you've got, delivering on the library books issue, quote unquote, with all the caveats about why, you know, the extent to which it is an issue there. The other screen, and I kind of, you know, I think I was traveling when this happened or, you know, otherwise preoccupied. Governor Abbott also signed the Texas Chips Act. Mm -hmm. And there's a U.S. Chips Act, but I think there's not a lot of discussion. Not to be confused with the great show from (laughs) California. Yes, Paunch. Yeah. Um, not to be confused with Ponch, and I can't remember the other guy's name. The blonde guy? I'm yeah, the blonde guy. Larry <laughs> Wilcox was the actor's name. That just popped in my head. But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> enough free association for now. Um, but last week, Greg Abbott signed the Texas Chips Act, which creates the Texas Semiconductor Innovation Fund, which is, you know, a fair-sized pot of money. Um, you know, over a billion dollars, closer to 1.3, actually. It'll help, unlo- it'll help access federal funds. and that kind Right, of right, which, which, you know, subsidizes companies that manufacture chips in Texas and provides funds to universities and other entities to um, do research and work on chip design or manufacturing projects. In other words, you know, it's an industrial policy. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You I know, mean- um... It's, That's what we used to call it. You know, I don't think we, you know, and so I, I, I underline this as a split screen because we've been, you know, we've been going on for years, if not months, about the, you know, competing imperatives mm-hmm. and the competing constituencies inside the Republican Party. And we haven't done a big, you know, sort of roundup on all this, but this was one of those 
pieces of legislation, mm-hmm. not very controversial. Yeah. You know, discussed quite a bit. Passed, I think, without too much pushback and in, in both chambers. Um, but, you know, what can I say? It's a, it's a pro, you know, we've talked a lot about the eco devo impulse and it's, you know, it is again, industrial policy pursued by the state and, you know, a not insignificant amount of money, again, some of which is going to business and some of which is going to higher ed research. Well, again, you know what I mean? With this, with this, you know, you're bringing up this dichotomy and I'll try to be a little bit more explicit and then I'll bring up another example of this because it's, it's interesting, right? Like on the one hand, you know, you've got the legislature, you know, and I just, you know, I'm just going to say it this way because I feel like, you know, trying to burn books basically, right? <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, you know, there's the reality of the fact that Texas is in this, you know, in and of itself is in this very competitive economic environment that's not even just based in the U.S., but it's it's a worldwide competitive economic environment around something like chips, which, you know, you think, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, I'm kind of laughing when you talk about his industrial policy, obviously, because also, you know, the people working, you know, on these chips and, you know, Working these places, this is not your standard industrial job. You know, right. these are pretty these are pretty high end jobs for the most part. And most of these people probably read a lot of books, right. went to college. It, the, the dynamic there of these sort of two things going on. On the one hand, like, well, can we like move back? You know, again, I don't have, you know, I'm just saying, you know, standard sort of conservative policy direction. Can we can we take a step back? Can we slow down? The kids are seeing too much. Whatever. On the one hand, on the other hand, we need to be at the forefront of the technology. You know, that of the right. next you know, at least 50, 100 years, it makes me think of, you know, sort of the similar dynamic that was faced with uh, the legislature's orientation towards higher education institutions, et cetera, lots of people pointed out, which is on the one hand, you've got this uh, this desire, this priority, you know, especially in the House to invest big in Texas's public universities, put a bunch of money in there. The idea was we're going to do this in exchange for keeping tuition flat. And everybody was kind of on board with this. And, for, and, to, spread, and to spread the higher ed ecosystem and and the resources within it to the not to the to the schools that are not the current flagship. right the so big, there's beyond the a and m and the yeah, a and m and ut the system. biggest thing they accomplished this session was the way that they reformulated a community college financing that's well, so just, and just, also the, the formation of the the tough right so just just setting this so there's all this stuff going on, on the one hand yeah. to basically bolster texas's higher education institutions while at the same time like let's get rid of tenure Right. Which would destroy Texas's higher education institution. I'm not saying that as some like, you know, hysterical act. I mean, I don't really care. I don't have tenure. You know, I'm never going to have tenure. Not my problem. But, you know, ultimately, I do know from a market perspective, you know, there would be a huge, you want to talk about immigration. (laughs) There'd be an outflow. Reverse migration. Yeah, there'd be a pretty huge outflow of faculty, you know, from all of Texas's top universities, basically to anywhere else immediately. And so sort of like, you know, there's- Look, even the discussion there are, you know- reasonably, you know, anecdotal, but reasonable, you know, because they have to be, they can't be that documented, but, you know, a lot of evidence that it actually is, is already the discussion even hurt recruiting. Well, look, you know, I, and I was thinking about this this morning, you know, I, I'm not, I really, yeah, we've kind of stayed away from this. No. And this is a more general observation, but, uh, but it relates, which is, you know, I was thinking this morning for something else I'm going to do later today about, you know, people who claim they're going to move because of politics and like, and it's just one of those things. I'm not saying that there aren't situations where people move because of the politics of a place. And I mean, obviously, in extreme conditions, for sure, right? When we're talking about immigration broadly, but we're talking about trans kids. Well, and we're talking about trans kids for sure. But when we're talking about like your everyday politics, living life in the United States of America. I'm tired of reading the newspapers about what's going on in my state or my country. Yeah. You know, the idea that like, you know, people moving is some sort of like a, a broad based actual political response. It's like, you just got to stop and say, time out for a second. Like, what kind of a symbol? 
of, you know, let's just say uh, economic you know, freedom. It is to even consider the idea of like picking up and moving from some place that you presumably own a home, you have a career, you have all these things. And you're just going to go like, well, I'm moving to Colorado. Right. It's like, you're not, and just real quick, we're not talking about normal people here. We're talking about people who have the resources most times to like even consider something like this seriously. Right. You know who people like that are in some cases? Academics who could get university jobs somewhere else. Right. I mean, they have the ability to actually move in a market where it's common to move state to state, where it's common to take a job somewhere else, and where, again, you know, they'll pay for your moving expenses. And you may have to move down market, but, you know. But if you really want to. You can. You can. And so, I mean, I think that's actually a more real thing than I think a lot of people say, well, I'm moving to Canada. It's like, yeah, right. Okay. Right. I'll see you there. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, we've even even in terms of the you know, all the discussion of the political composition of the in-migration to Texas from other states. Mm-hmm. You know, we've not seen a whole lot of evidence that people are moving for political reasons, economic drivers. Yeah, like, can you get a job? Right. Does it pay well? Is it in a cool place? Can you afford housing? Yeah, it is the place comparably, yeah, are you, you know. You know, can, and the thing is, Texas still has a lot of those places. Right. <laughs> you know. And so, you know, I mean, but I think, you know, the broader point there that, you know, to go back to the split yeah, the, screen the split metaphor screen. tied all together. I mean, higher education, I mean, you know, the debate over higher education, the debates over higher education in this last session, last couple of sessions really have very much illustrated this and that there's a, you know, there's a kind of internal contradiction there. And again, to go back to the idea of an industrial policy, again, by industrial policy too, I mean, yeah. as a as a term of, you know, as an academic term, that's not just like, we're talking about manufacturing, we're talking about in, you know, economic strategy led by, you know, state investment of resources to influence the underlying fundamentals of an economy, right? So, um, to go back to my comparative politics. Yes. Right? I know you like that. I, um, do, I do like uh, So, you know, that was that, you know, the, the, the split screen on higher ed during the, you know, we talked about this probably not on the podcast, I don't think, but offline a little bit. It's like, you know, were it not for the politics, which make it kind, of, which make it kind of comprehensible, if not defensible, yeah, one could be forgiven if you just you know kind of arrived and go, wait, does the left hand know what the right hand yeah. is doing here? Um, that's almost too pointed in terms of left and right. So, and then of course the coming trial in the state, the coming trial of Ken Paxton uh, in the Senate continues to fuel speculation, opining on on the politics and and the process that will shape. Uh, what the impeached attorney general's fate is going to be. And, you know, I don't feel like there's been a, an enormous amount of public movement on that. No, it's a lot of, a lot of public speculation. And, and, but there's, you know, I, they are, I'm pretty confident, hard at work on crafting the rules for what that trial is going to look like, which is coming up. And we'll find out about that later this month, at least per the, the initial announcement by the lieutenant governor. Um, so given all that, but, you know, I mean, I think the, the lieutenant or the, the, the attorney general being impeached brings us full circle back once again to the, you know, once again, you know, unignorable Donald Trump right, and his indictment by special counsel, Jack Smith. So, you know, you know, we'll open it up a little bit. I mean, big question here in political terms, you know, we can start in Texas and we've got some national polling over the weekend that we can vector off a little bit. How does this impact views of Trump? Probably not at all. Yeah, I, you know. <laughs> Sorry. 
No, I think that's, you know, I think that's kind of, you know, I mean, it, I mean, that's like, the answer everybody is struggling with, right? Not, well, you know, and I mean, is, not struggling because it's so, I think that's the safest, most apparent and most defensible answer. Yeah. You know, I, but it's the same question we've been asking for the, for, about this guy since 2015. Well, and you know, the thing is, and it's not entirely Trump. I mean, I think, you know, the thing about it is, is yeah. that we ask the question about Trump repeatedly because he is unignorable and because, you know, his conduct makes him, you know, a consistent object of, you know, just, you know, whatever you want to call it, public attention, public fascination, you know, relevance even in the process and the processes that are going on. Um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, we've been watching this for a long, and I'd say just to add to this, you know, and the other side of this would say, you know, it's kind of like Joe Biden too. I mean, I wouldn't say that people are necessarily like, there's a lot of things that could happen that are going to actually fundamentally shift the electorate's view of Joe Biden. You know, it's right. just, it's sort of one of the sort of facets of politics. I mean, the question just really kind of comes down to your left and asking a question that's a lot more narrow, right? Which is to say, is the public going to shift? You say, you know, well, does the, does the, you know, does the share of, you know, quote unquote, never Trump Republicans as small as they are, does that share grow? You know, does the share of Republicans who maybe would lean towards Donald Trump in a Republican primary, you know, uh, but now might consider an alternative? I'm not saying vote for all, just even open up their. Does that share grow? And when I say that, I'm not even saying do we go from you know, if you look at most national polling, do we go from you know a third of the electorate to half? No, it's like, you know, does does twenty to thirty percent grow to thirty five percent? Is my mind? You know, we're talking about like little little right. bits. Um. And, you know, I just there's no evidence at this point that anything that is going to that he's done is going to change people's views, because one, I mean, these are not new allegations. I mean, it's just an aside like this information has been out. The detail is obviously greater, uh, you know, more damning probably than the general stuff. But but to a large extent, you know, what we know about people and, you know, the way that you their you cognitive know, habits. Yeah. Cognitive habits, the way that people process information, you know, it's sort of like. You know, it doesn't take much to look at something. Oh, that looks like a duck. It's probably a duck. And you just kind of keep going. And there's something yeah. to that, which is still just, a duck, still a duck. Right. Which is to say, you know, the, you know, the process was still messed up. The Justice Department is still weaponized. I, mean, I was talking about this on Friday, you know, in, you know, sort of in the wake of the indictment. And, you know, it was pretty easy to say, look, you know, if you kind of look around Twitter as an example, an imperfect example of anything, yeah. I'm not saying this is a sample, Big asterisk, yeah, not but... a sample of it, but but I think, you know, it gives you a sense of what the currents are. And you had, you know, Democrats producing a lot of memes and stuff, you know, essentially gleeful in this event, which I think is pretty premature. And you've got a lot of Republicans out there kind of following the same path, you know, standard path that they've been following and including, in fact, with response to Ken Paxton, which is to say the process is messed up. This is political, uh, you know, ultimately, hey, what about these other guys? Right. You know, I think the, you know, and, and this is where I think we can return to the theme that we've, you know, talked about a little bit before, but, you know. I think that's right, and I think and I think that it's interesting to compare the national dynamics and the response to Trump and all these locked-in views, and the Texas response to Paxton, because the big difference. I mean, there's there's several differences that are relevant. I don't want to overly reduce this. Trump is obviously much more prominent and mm -hmm. much more, and because he's more prominent, probably the attitudes are more are a bit more baked in. Yeah, I think so. And obviously awareness of Trump is, you know, much higher than awareness of the attorney general as we our polling has shown. But at the same time, you know, one of the big differences is that, you know, the response to the Paxton to the Paxton uh, impeachment in his situation, you know, the math and the calculations among Republicans is much more primary driven, I think, because the you know, the competitiveness 
at in the general elections here is just so much so much lower than at the national level. We were talking about this beforehand. And so the flip side of this is, you know, at the national level where presidential elections are being decided by, you know, a percent or two. We're looking at a series of 4951, 49.5, 50.5. They get man- and that percentage getting manifested in a few states. Right. So it just, you know, it changes the dynamic. And one is that, you know, and I was suggesting this beforehand, and I don't, you know, I think I believe this, that, um, you know, there could be incremental changes in views of Trump that may not show up in any way that we find reliable in mm-hmm. polling. That could actually be significant, and I think I think that's lurking out there. In and what makes me suspicious of that is that it's lurking out there as kind of the conventional wisdom. Yeah, I think no. maybe not quite that elaborated in things. No, the I've way heard, that people but. are phrasing that, I think, is the conventional wisdom is like, well, you know, the, I'm putting my hands on my hips right now. Right. So, you know, well, you know, the indictment might help Trump in the primary because it sort of reinforces this idea that he's under attack by Biden and the Justice Department and an unfair system, and he's the one who's going to stand up to it. And it also makes him the center of attention. And the idea is this right. sucks the oxygen out of the room. Now. We'll come back to that. But yeah. The idea is that's how it helps him in the primary. Let's set that aside. But then in the general election, I mean, I said I mentioned the idea of you know does this increase you know incrementally sort of Republican skepticism towards Trump? That doesn't mean they're going to vote for a Democrat. Maybe they just don't show up. Maybe they don't support him in a primary. Again, it depends on who the Democratic nominee is. A bunch of right. stuff. But the other piece of this in, in elections that are like forty nine fifty one, does this sour him even further among independents? And that's where you've got a problem. And I, and I think that's. I've not, you know, it's a little soon, I think, to rely on any of the polling. There was some, you know, some fresh polling came out over the weekend that was quality polling. I mean, you yeah, know, and you know, and you know, CBS, YouGov, ABC, it, somebody, and it kind of looked like all the polling on Trump in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, in the sense was, you know, you know, you could kind of vector this through this particular instance, but when you looked at it, as I recalled, one of them about, you know, was it serious? Is it political? Is it both? It's basically about a third, a third, a third. Maybe, right. maybe it's forty, yeah, forty. That was the YouGov you know. CBS poll. Yeah, and you know, and I bet you know, you break that down by partisanship. You know, you know what that graphic's going to look like. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, independence, I bet, you know, I'd have to go back and I could go back and look, but I can tell you, I'm just going to guess because why not? But I mean, I bet the independents were more on the both. Yeah. Right. Because everything's screwed up if you're an independent. Right. But, you know, having said that, you know, I, I, the conventional wisdom is probably not wrong, you know, in the sense that, you know, we haven't had a presidential candidate, you know, under indictment in, you know, potentially three states, you know, by the time, you know, he's running for reelection. You know, is that a great position to be in? You know, and for the true believers, it's fine. It makes no difference. Right. right? And for the sort of the people who are really the core of his base. You know, everything he's, he's telling them is, is a continuation of the same story. And really what we've seen in the last few weeks is just evidence that he's right, yeah. you know. Um, but right. if you're someone who's loosely paying attention to this, you know, you can already imagine the campaign ads with the riots. You know, you imagine the campaign ads with the boxes of, you know, state secrets, you know. And it's like yeah. – and I mean, you know, and just as sort of like a – you know, I mean we sort of sit here kind of from a weird point of view on this. But you and I were both sort of t- struck, you know, in the indictment by – and I mean I'm like, you know, just – you know, give you an honest reaction where, you know, you look at some of these pictures of these boxes, like, you know, <laughs> p- stacked up in a bathroom and you kind of like, and this part of it is like, is this guy okay? You know, like, I mean, it's just sort of yeah. like, you know, I mean, the guy can't afford a conference room somewhere, you know, I mean, like you can rent, you can rent these spaces. Like, you, can, you, right. can, you can rent, you can, you know, I mean, I'm going to tell you something. Florida has a lot of short term rental spaces. Well, and I would also you say, know, I mean, yeah. And it's just, I mean, it, you know, I mean, and again, we could, I'm not trying to make. Uh, I'm not trying to make fun. Even no, I just, no, no. It's just, I, I think it's fair. I mean, it's a, and it's another thing we could go on. You know, I mean, again, the optics of the amount day. of you know podcast time, pixels, <laughs> yeah. ink spent on trying to like figure out Donald Trump's 
psychology and cognitive processes, mm-hmm. you know, we you know, it could be, it's, it's effectively infinite, <laughs> you yeah. know, but, but no, I mean, I think, you know, I spent, you know, part of the weekend just reading every word of that indictment and, you know, some of it is just strange. Yeah. You know, I mean, his own lawyers are on the way, you know, to do the meeting to certify uh, the fact that he's turned over all the documents, he's going to turn over all the documents and that they've seen what's there and they're turning it over, you know, and he's like texting his guys to, you know, go throw the boxes in the bathroom or, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, in like the, you know, in, you know, and as I remember the timeline, it's like, you know, the lawyers are probably like driving over while these guys are frantically moving boxes, right? I mean, Boxes of state secrets. Well, you know, and and even, you know, and just to to your point about like kind of what goes on, I said, and that's the thing, it's not even like, okay, here's the state secrets box. It's just, you know, all this crap, right? Right. I mean, you know, the and look, I've got a ton of this crap, you know, one of those spilled boxes is like newspaper clippings and some files and some photographs and some top secret documents. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just very strange. My, you know, my, my mom was a divorce lawyer for years, which is not a great, if anybody's thinking about getting a divorce law, I would suggest you don't do that. <laughs> but like, you know, and part of what you do in divorce law, it seems to me is you basically become an accountant for people. And so it seemed to me that like, you know, throughout much of my life, around, my mom has just bo- bankers boxes and bankers boxes of stuff that you're just kind of moving around because this stuff is gone. And that's kind of what it looked like. It looked like a messy divorce and there's just all this right. stuff everywhere. And again, just, you know, as someone that, you know, I mean, like, and I'm just like, I'm not saying that anything matters because you know, it's, right. just, it's, a, it's in terms it, of like, you know, changing people's minds and fundamentally shifting. I yeah. think, yeah, but ultimately certainly Republican attitudes, but you know, yeah. but at the same time, you know, the idea that like, you know, you're having, you know, a very kind of clear narrative here about what's been going on with, you know, these top secret documents and you're applying for the job again to be like in charge of the nuclear weapons. It doesn't look great. Yeah. You know, and well, again, I mean, I you know, it's funny. We talk, you know, we have we talk so much. It about, also neutralizes a little bit the argument that Biden's senile. I mean, just as an aside, I mean, just you know, I mean, in right. the sense that you're kind of like, I mean, you know, you can go tit for tat on that at some point when you're looking at the boxes tilting over in the bathroom of all the stuff that he took out of right. the White House. You know, well, you know, yeah. There's a broader question there about the candidates that our political system is throwing up. Throwing up is a. <laughs> for, for leadership, and we, you know, you and I had this discussion during the 2020 primary. But I, you know, it, you know, it's worth noting. It's like, okay, these are the the, the two leaders right now. But that's another, you know, conversation perhaps for another time. But I think uh, it it does, you know, there's a couple different directions to go here as we get low on time. I think what I would say about this, though, at this point, is that also if we want to circle back to Texas. And to be as myopic as we can for the moment, you know, it does shift things on the ground here a little bit, given the Paxton situation. I mean, you know, one of the things that happened, you know, early in the process of the Paxton impeachment and even, you know, previous was the way that Donald Trump and his allies, you know, not entirely, but largely, I think, as through the agency of the lieutenant governor and the lieutenant governor and, frankly, the attorney general's close relationship with Trump as at least political relationship. Right. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody, including the speaker himself, had any illusions that when Donald Trump was criticizing Dade Phelan a few months ago, 
that that was not because Donald Trump gets up thinking about Dade Phelan, the Speaker of the Texas House of Representatives. Yeah, I don't think so. Right? There is a conduit for that kind of criticism. And, you know, Trump and his allies, you know, criticize the Paxton indictment, uh, the Paxton impeachment. Right. You know, that dynamic is different now. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's night and day. And look, you know, if, if anything, we know that the Trump, you know, Trump's intervention in these kind of things can seem, you know, slightly at odds with what would seem to be the reality of the situation. But I, but I, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, the value of Donald Trump sticking up for Ken Paxton, the value proposition there is different now. Now, look, as you said, there, there will be, you know, at some point, and it's probably already happened and I just haven't seen it. There is a sense of connecting those two in a way that exploits the attitudes you were talking about. Look, they're always going after our guys. Look, they're going after Trump just like they're going after Paxton. They're going after Paxton just like they're going after Trump. But the different piece of that on the tex- on the in Texas is that you know, a lot of Republicans voted to impeach uh uh, uh Ken Paxton and in the same way that there are calculations going on nationally right now among Republicans going, okay, is this the time that I, you know, that we abandon ship or do we do the Lindsey Graham and double down? And, you know, Lindsey Graham was on uh, ABC Sunday show this week, you know, and became kind of, in, you know, at least for a couple of news cycles, news cycles being short now, yeah. kind of the poster child for, you know, semi-hysterical defense of Trump that is just throwing everything up there. What about Hillary Clinton? What about Joe Biden? What about Hunter Biden? You know, this is not, you know, you know, he is not, you know, it's, it's, I mean, this was, I thought the funniest thing, but it worked, I think to a certain degree. He's like, you know, there is no evidence that, you know, he conducted, that he committed espionage and that, you know, for, well, the espionage act doesn't mean you're meeting a guy in a dark street and handing him documents. It's a whole collection of things that, you know, cover the, uh, the yeah. potential violations of law here. Well, I think, you know, you, and you raised there are two important points here. I mean, one is, you know, the way this process is going to play out is going to, in both, and the, this process, I should say, including both the Paxton process and Trump's, you know, sort of process going forward, the process is going to play to their advantage. And that's because the legal process is slow. I mean, in, right. in the case of Ken Paxton, that's going to go relatively quickly, actually. Well, I mean, because he's been at it for... Because it's been he's going, actually been de- deflecting this longer than Trump has. Exactly. And so the Paxton thing, you know, will go relatively quickly. But even that's gonna, even that, there's a lot of time for Paxton to, to go out and, you know, send, present, present his case in the court of public opinion. And when you do that, you're not bound by anything, right? right. I mean, so ultimately, you, can, you know, so Lindsey, you know, in the case of Trump, Lindsey Graham can go out and say, well, he didn't commit espionage, so this is BS. And it's like, that's not... That has nothing to do with anything right. here, right? But it doesn't matter, and that's, that's just the, part of the delay deflect. Yeah, strategy. and that's and that's the yeah. thing. We know that there's a there's an advantage to delaying these things out because all kinds. I mean, in the case of Trump, you know, he could become president and then essentially give himself immunity potentially, or just right. tell the Justice Department to stop or whatever, right? Yeah. You know, but also in the case of you know when you're not really trying to fight on the actual charges, which I think is interesting, which is the one you know one very notable similarity in both the case of Paxton and Trump that nobody is coming to their defense necessarily on the merits and saying, well, no, what he did was fine. I mean, Lindsey Graham is the closest right. to saying it's fine. Um, well, Lindsey Graham was like, yeah, you know, he probably made some you know mistakes. Some mistake, were made. Mistakes were made, <laughs> right? Of course. But then the other side of it is, I mean, to what you're saying before, you know. In, in a situation like this, I mean, what I'm watching, and again, because I know public opinion is going to be very slow to move if it moves at all, 
But what I think, you know, the point that you're making here is that, you know, politicians are calculated actors and they're, and they are, you know, regardless right. of what you think of them, they are strategic and they are intelligent about the things that they know about. Right. right. And generally to be someone like a Lindsey Graham, to be a Ron DeSantis, to even to be a Chris Christie, mind you, right. you know, but also to be, you know, a member in the Texas House of Representatives for, you know, five or six terms. You have to have right. some sense of what of what kind of trade offs you're making. Yeah. And what's interesting is, to you be know, a, yeah, how about to be a Senator Nichols or a Senator Schwartner? Sure. Just right. to pick a couple of names out of that. Just hat. pick a couple of names out of the hat. Right. You know, you you've seen some things, you know, you make some calculations. And the one thing about all of these people, and I'm not saying this is a negative, it's reality, is like they are transactional for their political careers, right? You don't That's get exact, that yeah. successful if you are not. And so I think, you know, the, one of the things that you notice is whereas, you know, there's a lot of wait and see going on with Trump. And I think, you know, I read something that described it this way. You essentially have Lindsey Graham as one example who's kind of going full on. He didn't do anything. You've got kind of the Ron DeSantis approach, which is to say, I'm not really talking about what he did, but the process is all messed up. The Justice Department's a problem and kind of going on those themes. Right. And then you've got the, you know, the Chris Christie, Asa Hutchison's of the world who are saying, you know, this is a problem. And what I'm watching is what does the balance of that look like as time goes on? You know, the Chris Christie, right. Asa Hutchinson card, does that get bigger? Does it get smaller? Because that gives you a sense of, again, what do, what do elites with a really invested calculation right. in this process, how do they view it? Now, compare that to Texas, where the reality is, you know, if you're saying, you know, I mean, I don't want to be mean again, but if you're looking at, you know, so who's lining up behind Paxson outside of Trump and outside of sort of these other vectors, you know, who's lining up behind Paxson? It's a lot of the dissidents, you know, yeah. who we kind of started talking about in the McCarthyans. A lot of the people who've been on the outside. The and chair of the Republican Party, the Defend Liberty PAC. The, you know. Right. And you said, well, isn't the chair of the Republican Party mainstream? It's like, no, no. Yeah. Just full stop. No, that's not the mainstream Republican view in Texas. That is a very, you know, the Republican Party of Texas, the platform, the people running that are very much a reflection of the people who show up. Yeah. At primaries and who and not who show the primaries, but who when they say, hey, do you want to come to like the nominating caucus later? They say, yeah, I'll do that. These are the most some of the most intense right. partisans that exist. But what's interesting is outside of those those guys and gals. Right. You come back and you look at the fact that what makes us different in the fundamental way is that, you know, it's majority Republicans in the House that voted to impeach him. Most of the Republicans voted to impeach him. And so to me, that doesn't say like, you know, there's just a natural, this is different than that because of the fact that this is, you can't say, well, these are Democrats on a political witch hunt because that's just factually inaccurate. Right. It's just not, it can't well, be true. What they're do although what they're doing is saying that they're connecting it with the argument that the Speaker of the House is too Democrat friendly. Right. They're, well, they're closet cetera, Democrats or rhinos, whatever. Again, right. we're, 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 you know, on the heels of two of the most conservative, like, legislative sessions in Texas history. So that's, you know, again, just in terms of the- There's, but, a, pretty, there's a pretty good opportunity for a pushback on that. I mean, for the, from the perspective, and I think the, the Speaker has done that largely, but from the perspective of a policy output approach, you'd say, well, that seems, that's just not, again, in evidence. So you go back to what I'm saying, which is, you know, these are elites looking at looking at the writing on the wall, looking at the information, making calculations. In the case of Paxton, there's clearly a decision. We need to cut this guy loose, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, I mean, people are being quiet about this to some degree. I mean, the governor's not said much. The lieutenant no, governor is saying, you know, I've got to be responsible because we're presiding over this. In this environment where... Negative, again, negative partisanship is so powerful and the, the political system is so, you know, non-competitive at the general election le level. I take those as pretty clear signs that people are moving sideways mm -hmm. away from Paxton. Yeah. 
And the decision now that are trying to be made, and certainly the the most important decisions are in the construction of these rules mm-hmm. yeah, in I mean, the Senate for the trial, is you know how can we do this with the least political damage? Yeah, and I think if you're a House member, I mean, especially I'm mean, talking about House Republican, I, you know, you don't want to touch this with a ten foot pole. You don't want to be the face of you know the Ken right. Paxton prosecution. But I think you know if you kind of basically took a vote for impeachment, you can probably go back to your you know to your district and say. Hey, look, there's a lot of stuff that went on there. And I think, you know, that's the Senate's job to kind of poke into right. and figure it out. And they'll, you know, and ultimately it's, you know, we talked about this You know, the, you know, the, the far right packs can make all the noise they want on Twitter about how, well, we're going to primary challenge all of them. You know, everybody that voted, you know, for his impeachment, that's a Republican gets a primary challenger. Well, you know, you got enough money to spread that across that many races while you just go right ahead. Well, uh, yeah, and I mean... I don't it, think they have the resources to do it. They don't have the resources. Even if they could get him, as you're saying, I think if, you know, if he winds up getting tried and removed by the Senate, I it's just, you know, Attorney General Paxton is just a a not great candidate to become like the cause celeb for the Republican right. No, and the thing is, and just even this whole thing, I mean, like, you know, those same groups have been really, really unsuccessful in primary challenging people. Yeah. I mean, and that's when they're being much, much more selective in who right. they choose to primary challenge. And that was at a time, you know, I would say, honestly, you know, three or four sessions ago when the House and Senate were producing even less conservative legislation right. than it's producing now. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's sort of like, okay, fine, but I mean, you know, we've seen this play before, and ultimately these groups have not really, ex, you know, right. they've not really shown the power that they seem to say that they you have. Know, what I, you in, know, what in, I've been evidence. saying to people about this in a lot of ways, that, in the way I think about this, is that you have to, you know, it's helpful, I think, to understand the psychology of most members, and not to cast aspersions, but, you know, there is really no happier elected elected legislator than one that finds out on the registration deadline day that they don't have a challenger. Yep. Yeah. You know, that is like, it's like Mm -hmm. Christmas. Mm -hmm. And their staff too. And so, right. And so, and so if you, you know, so in that way, the odds are a little bit in favor of, you know, these otherwise not largely successful, you know, headhunting expeditions by the far right you know they can they can exploit that fear because the fear of you know the discomfort and the you know the aversion to having a challenger is disproportionate probably to the reality of that happening but since nobody wants to be contested at all even if it's a crappy opponent or you know you're going to have a fundraising advantage they just don't want it yeah and that's and why they'll go a lot, they'll go pretty far to avoid it but everyone's having to refigure the math because the Paxton thing is pretty egregious and the house you know, they did a good job. You know, the leadership in the House, those that wanted this to happen in the House did a good job of rallying their troops and wrangling. You know, we're talking offline about McCarthy County. You know, they counted votes pretty well on this. Yeah, I mean, and then that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, that's that's exactly right. But what that does lay out there then very clearly is the fact that, you know, knowing that these guys more than anything else want a nice, clean primary in which they're not running against anybody because the general election is, is pretty much determined for almost all of the members right. at this point, especially this close to redistricting. You know, it shows, it makes you wonder about, you know, in an interesting way, the calculation that was made among so many of them to essentially invite a topic 
that could be yeah. the impetus for a primary challenge. Yeah. Now that either now you can look at them one of two ways. I mean, one can be that the thought is, you know, well, Ken Paxton has done so much that that you know, once more of this comes out, we can't be associated with this. The other side of it, and I think both of these are in play, is yeah, these dissident groups always say they're going to primary us if we don't do what they want. And you yeah. know what? It's not working. Yeah. So. Right. So the expectations have been have been discounted, I think, and so. You know, we'll see a little bit. You know, it's going to be a little bit, you know, of time. I, I kind of suspect that it's going to be interesting to see how much we start hearing about the rules. And it won't be next week, but in the week after that. And as we get closer to the to the Senate adopting those rules. I so. mean, the, you know, I always say like, you know, we always, I always joke about expertise in here and stuff and say how, you know, it kind of stinks to be an expert or whatever. But the only thing you can say right now is, well, the rules are going to matter. Yeah. And it's like, that's it. And that's all we can say right now until we see what they are. But a lot of, you know, I'm like one of those people, you know, there's a lot of like breathless speculation. Well, you know, they might decide that none of this evidence can be, can count or what? It's right. like, yeah, they might do anything, but you, until you know. Well, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, you know, split hairs on whether, you know, the rules will require them to, re to not, you know, require some of these members to not be there, whether they will recuse or not. I mean, there'll be time to split those hairs. Yeah, later. we can, we can, we can figure out the meaning of that when it happens. But at this point, anything that's kind of like speculating is just that. that. On that, thanks to Josh for being here. Happy birthday again. Thank you. Thanks to our, you're welcome. Thanks to our excellent crew in the audio studio uh, here in the liberal arts development studio at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll put this post on the website with some supplemental material, maybe some of this polling we've talked about. And we'll be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 